Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this is for all you Why Not A Doc listeners in the greater Manchester area. If you are South Asian and you know over the age of 60, whether you have dementia or not, if you speak Urdu, I would love to hear from you because it would you could possibly be able to participate in this research, which is going to change services. And it would be incredible to have you involved. You'd only have to contribute an hour of your time. So you can contact me at nadine.merza. That's N-A-D-I-N-E dot M-I-R-Z-A at postgrad.manchester.ac.uk. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? It feels strange not having anybody else here to chat to, but that's okay. I'll cope. You'll cope. Given the current circumstances, we'll all just cope together. This is the final episode in our mini-series exploring health conditions. Now, make sure you listen to the others as well. It's not like a Grace Anatomy type situation. There's no like overarching storylines. It's just that episodes 44 to 46 are quite good. Today we're exploring dementia. Now, even though I spent a number of years studying this topic, I'm going to invite somebody else to explain what we're talking about. So dementia is essentially, it's a collection of symptoms actually. So dementia is really any kind of damage to the brain that can result in things like memory loss, loss of language, um, changes in behavior and personality. And a lot of people confuse dementia with Alzheimer's disease, but Alzheimer's disease is just actually one of the diseases that, diseases that can cause dementia, so that can cause this collection of symptoms. So that's basically what dementia is, and it can be due to plaques building up in the brain, so that's Alzheimer's. It can be because there's not enough blood getting to the brain, so like vascular dementia, or it can be because parts of the brain have shrunk and even disappeared. So like frontotemporal dementia. So that's essentially what it is. That's Nadine. You'll be hearing more from her later. It's all well and good explaining the textbook definition of what dementia is. But the reality is that these are conditions with no cure. Statistics from Alzheimer's Research UK show that the number of people with dementia in 2018 was 50 million. This is set to rise to 152 million in 2050 over three times the value in just over 30 years. 
But like Nadine mentioned, dementia is not just one disease. So what is it like to come face to face with one of the rarer forms? Outside world. <laughs> so uh, my name is Shaheen and I am a carer for my mother who has a rare type of dementia known as frontotemporal dementia. And I'm also a media champion for Alzheimer's Research UK. And I'm very passionate about raising awareness of dementia and breaking down uh, barriers to understanding the disease. Frontotemporal dementia tends to affect people at a younger age. Most cases are diagnosed between 45 to 65, but can be found in older or younger individuals. Frontotemporal dementia occurs when nerve cells in the frontal and or temporal lobes of the brain die, and the pathways that connect these lobes, found in the front and the sides of the brain, change. This changes the brain on a fundamental level. These sections deal with a whole range of tasks. We're talking behaviour, problem solving, planning and the control of emotions, plus things like speech, understanding words and the names of objects, recognising faces and simply recognising the familiar world around us. So to lose all of that through a rare condition is life-changing. So I was, I was living in Germany in 1998, then I moved back to the UK in sort of 2000. I, I was working for an American software company and I was made redundant. So in 2004, um, as an interim, I thought I would uh, help out with the family business. Uh, my father uh, was a chartered accountant and mum and dad had built up an accountancy practice over a number of years. And it was just meant to be a temporary gap stop. And of course, with me being around, I found myself getting more and more involved in everyday tasks for my mum. I'm just trying to give you an idea of her age, right? So mum was born in 46. So in 2004, so she would have been 58. Looking back, I can see now she was struggling with everyday tasks. For example, she used to be responsible for the VAT in the business. And she would constantly ask uh, myself or my father what an item was on an invoice, whether it was a drinks item, whether it was a food item, um, which client was whom. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen invoices for restaurants. They normally have hundreds of items on them. So if you can imagine being asked constantly what each of these items were, it became very, very um, annoying. She'd become very aggressive and argumentative as well. And I just thought it was a case of, oh, my mom's getting on my nerves and, um, mm. uh, you know, we would have unresolved arguments, circular arguments, no matter what I did. For example, my mom would, would forget to pay her credit card bills on time, the days when you wrote checks. And she would get a late fine. And then she would say to me, oh, you know, why have I got a late fine? And I'd say, well, well mom, you know, you posted it too late and she couldn't understand this. And it would erupt into a really awful row, which had nothing to do with me. But yet in me trying to explain to my mom what the problem was, she just wouldn't accept that she had sent something off late and then she would get very angry because she had this fine. And I remember I would end up speaking to my close circle of friends and telling them about these silly arguments and being called all kinds of mean and nasty names. 
not understanding why my mum was being so mean. So, of course, I would go and vent to my friends, but it really doesn't occur to you that somebody might not be well. How did you go from that point to then eventually uh, getting to a point where your mum actually got some kind of diagnosis? What was the what was the process from get to from getting to where you were, the place you were talking about, to the place where she got diagnosed? Okay, so uh, as I said, this all kind of started or became very noticeable around two thousand and four, mm-hmm. and I think around two thousand nine or ten. Some family uh, friends had been saying that my mum wasn't recognising people at parties or remembering people's names and maybe I should take my mum to the doctor. And because I didn't see my mum in these settings, I didn't really understand what they meant. I do know that my mum by this time was really falling out with a lot of her friends. And again, silly little, you know, what what on the surface are silly little arguments would turn into huge Mm. rows. And so it wasn't just happening within the family. It was clearly happening outside of the family setting, but nobody had actually said anything to me. So in 2010, I took my mum to the GP. And of course, they have something called the... um, is it the MME test? It's like a memory test. That's right. Yeah, the MME yeah, test. That's right. Yeah. So my mum passed that more or less with flying colours because she knew what day it was. She knew where she was. She could spell words backwards. Those um, aspects of her skills had not really been touched. And so the right. GP said, oh, well, you know, it's okay if your mum doesn't recognise faces and names um it's really too early to put a label on your mum and maybe come back in six months and we'll see what the situation is but I I felt very unheard um I I just felt as if the GP had his own set of beliefs around dementia he was also an Asian GP Um, okay that's interesting yeah so I really I, I really do feel that we in our culture, we sometimes have our own biases about certain types of illnesses, especially if we think that there might be, you know, it might be linked to being considered mad or something. You know, my family's from Bang- Bangladesh. The GP happened to be from Pakistan. Um, so that's when I say Asian, I, I, I sort of mean, you know, from that part of the world. By this time, my mum had already started doing strange things at the surgery. For example, she became very obsessed with calling uh, the GP. And, and this particular GP, he was the son of uh, the GP she used to see. And so she became very obsessed with wanting to see him and wanting to call the surgery and only wanted to speak with him. And these are very typical behaviours in line with FTD. It's not really normal that you become obsessed like this about your GP but presumably at the time you um you were were you aware that these were like typical uh, behaviors for frontal temporal no, dementia or no. were you still at a place where you were confused no by I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't even say i had a clue that something was wrong with my mom and that she was ill i just thought she was being a horrible mean nasty person and she didn't give a damn about who she hurt 
it was an incident at a dentist. I took my mum to the dentist as I had done for a long time. And by this time, I had fallen into a caring role without even realising I had taken a, on yeah. a lot of um, uh, responsibilities uh, for, for my mum. So went to the dentist. Uh, the de- my mum had a broken tooth. The dentist went to administer some... Um, uh, anesthetic and they'd done this on numerous occasions and all of a sudden my mum was screaming in the chair and we were all so frightened my mum my mum was just screaming out Shaheen Shaheen help me help me as if she was being killed or something or attacked by somebody and it was the most traumatic wow. experience for for the dentist the people around including myself anyway the tooth had to be extracted and afterwards my mum just got up and calmly walked out of the room. And then the dentist said to me, you know, she said, Shane, I've treated many people of your mum's age. And she said, something doesn't seem right. You know, maybe your mum needs a little bit of help or medication. And there's just something not quite right. And I literally broke down into tears. And I said, look, I've been to the GP. I don't know what's wrong with my mum. You know, I I was just dismissed. And she said, look, I'm going to call the GP. So she called the GP. And he immediately referred her to the local um, psychiatrist consultant or the local uh, memory clinic. And so we were just referred. Initially, my mom met with a very nice consultant, thought said my mom had Alzheimer's, started my mom on Aricept, and that was it. Hearing from Shaheen, it sounds like there are so many different hoops to jump through in order to get help. So... How could this process be made easier? One researcher, now stuck in Pakistan thanks to this pandemic, is looking into this. I'm Nadine Mirza and I'm a researcher into dementia and the experience of it in ethnic minorities, which is looking at the sort of entire diagnostic process of dementia and how South Asians go through that experience. So the testing, the interviews, all of it basically. My work is in the health services aspect of it. So the memory clinics where we diagnose dementia. And it's looking at the fact that even though South Asians have all the risk factors for dementia, we're more likely to get it because of diseases that are associated with dementia and just because of lifestyle factors and things like that. They're not going to the services as much as they should be. Or when they do go, it's far later into the progression of their dementia. Their dementia has usually gotten far too severe and then the services can't really do anything for them. So I'm exploring, you know, why this is, because up until now, it's always been to blame the South Asian community and ethnic minority communities in general, that they don't engage with services, they don't have enough education about it. But it's the fact that even when they do get the education, even when they do find out what they need to know and they come to these services, the experience is often subpar because the tests being used to diagnose dementia are not designed for ethnic minorities, not designed for South Asians. The, you know, the, the way that staff engages with them, it doesn't really account for their culture and their individual differences and things like that. So I'm going to be looking at, you know, the experiences of South Asians who have been through the system to see what went wrong, what went right, what would they like to see more of, what would they like to see completely out of it. 
and try to come up with solutions that are in accordance with what they've suggested. That sounds like a really broad thing to cover. What would you say are some of the big issues with services are currently? I think number one, the one that, that I've explored the most would be the testing aspect. So we have the cognitive tests that are used across the NHS, you know, across the world to diagnose dementia. And they do this by detecting issues in a person's cognitive abilities, such as language and memory and attention. So these cognitive tests have been designed for European countries and English speakers. So if you don't fall into that category, the test has not been designed for you. And because of that, you are less likely to perform well on it, even if you don't have dementia. Or if you do have dementia and you perform really badly on the test, a lot of clinicians assume that it's the language and the cultural barrier and your dementia goes undetected. So before you can even get access to help, you need to have this proper diagnosis. And when that diagnosis doesn't happen, all the signposting to legal help, therapy and counseling and even medicine is blocked off. You don't get access to it because a test was just not matched for you. In 2011, um, when my mom was referred to the local services, I don't think I spoke about it much outside of the family. I think my dad was probably in denial and we would go to the appointments and my dad would say, so what can be done? What can be done? Like thinking it could be fixed with a pill. And that's not the case. Um, so at this point, my mom had the inaccurate Alzheimer's diagnosis. She wasn't really suffering huge memory problems. She, she she was suffering from a different type of dementia that had not been diagnosed at that point. So I was just pretty much on my own. And the other thing is my mom was still interacting with family members. And unfortunately, she was telling them a lot of mistruths about me to them and saying that I was doing certain things and I was upsetting her. And, you know, actually, the family members believed her. And hmm. no one asked me anything or said anything. Mum and Dad were still going to the office. Uh, one morning, my mum called me into the kitchen and she just said, oh, Shaheen, can you look at my head? And I said, why? And she had a huge bruise on her head, right? And I said, what happened? She said, oh, you know, your dad got upset with me. And I said, what did he do? She said, oh, you know, he hit me over the head with a stapler. And I was just horrified. And I, I then confronted my dad. And I said, dad, you, look, we, we are the ones that have to change, right? Because the other thing with, with my mum's kind of dementia is that she would be very vocal all the time so she would emulate noises or she would be very repetitive and I think he couldn't take it but but I said dad you know you can't do things like that so he denied it 
And then he said, no, I just hit her on the head with uh, a kind of, you know, these hanging files. And I said, no, Dan. I said, I said, mom said you did it with a stapler. I said, you know, that's so dangerous. You could literally have killed her. And um, he, he, he just denied it. And that made me so angry. It made me so, so, so angry. And the fact that he was denying what he had done. So therefore... He had become very defensive. So in terms of us, you know, sticking together as a family and supporting each other with me pointing out this accusation, that's how I was viewed as someone making up these allegations. I thought, oh, my God, I can't even turn to any family because they are now questioning what actually happened and whether it was true. And that's how I felt. So then I didn't I didn't reach out to anybody after that. I then started calling social services. I didn't, again, I didn't have a clue who are social services, what do they do? That's the kind of thing that other people need help with, not me, you know. <laughs> but I did I did ask for help and they'd come along and they'd say, So what what are you looking for? And and I again I sat there clueless. I mean, here's me, a highly educated person. I was completely clueless. It was a huge battle. So I was ignored by social services for about a year. I think I was in such a bad place. I just thought, my God, is this how I'm going to live the rest of my life? I was afraid to leave my mum and dad alone. I was afraid to be out of the house for any length of time. I was afraid every time they went to the office. And in the end, I went to my local MP. And I must say, um, they were really empathetic. They were really fantastic. They wrote this amazing letter to social services and then, boom, everything started. Uh, you know, nothing was too much trouble. But it should not have to take an incident like this to happen. It should not, your MP should not have to be involved in order for social services to listen to you. Then all of a sudden they called me, they came round, they um, gave me a, a package of care. Um, <clears throat> I, I think... I, what I wanted was for my mum to continue going to the office with my dad, but have somebody with her so she could continue in her normal life, but be kept safe from the public and the public be kept safe from her. And how did how did your more immediate family and the people in the community respond to what the, all these difficult things that you were going through both yourself and your parents do you have any siblings by oh the way? yes I have one brother yes yes um I didn't really hear from so my mum has one sister here uh so I have her sister and so I have three cousins that's the only immediate family I have in the UK the rest of my mum's uh siblings are in the US um I think they just thought I was making it all up so 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 2011 is when my mum had the inaccurate diagnosis. Then through, uh, just to rewind so that can answer your question, Oz. So then um, I started doing my own research and I came across the Rare Dementia Support Group. And as soon as I got in touch with them and I explained what was happening, they told me what to do. They said, you, you go to your GP, ask for a referral to the National Hospital of Neurology. And what your mum needs is an accurate diagnosis so you can plan and prepare for her future. So my mum was then accurately diagnosed by Professor Fox in July 2013. 
and they see people with rare dementias day in, day out. So at the local level, it's not necessarily picked up, but at a specialist centre of excellence like the National Hospital of Neurology and their sophisticated um, MRI uh, facilities, they are, and other testing that they do, they're able to accurately diagnose the type of dementia a person has. So by this time, once in 2013, once mum had the accurate diagnosis, I was like, aha, I can tell people that mum, this is what is wrong with mum. And then people would say, oh, but how can your mum have dementia? Because you know, all of her clothes match and her jewellery matches her dress and her handbag and her shoes. So how can there be anything wrong with her? Right? And this is with an accurate diagnosis from one of the top neurologists in the country. In the earlier days, if they did come to the house, um, we might have a dinner here or something and all the family would come and they just sit there talking amongst themselves. And I just feel like, okay, my mum and dad are here and you lot are talking about your... Then they talk about their holidays that they're going on and the cruises that they're going on and this and this. And and they'd have a, just a good old catch-up amongst themselves. And I just think, really? This is, what, this is what you came here for? But slowly, 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 people just stop coming to the house. And it's really hard because what can you say? Uh, I, I find it really hard to say, hey, guys, would you mind popping by for a cup of tea? Like, because... By socially isolating my mum, you're also socially isolating me. And I'll give you one example. My mum has a brother that lives in America and his two kids had brought him to the UK to celebrate his 70th birthday. Very fit, very well person, very highly educated. And we had this whole discussion about when it's good to see my mum and they want to come and see her and so on and so forth. So I gave them all the times, my mum's routine um, I didn't want to interfere too much with his holiday here because his kids had brought him here to celebrate his birthday. But I just thought, just come for one visit. You don't have to stay very long. It's not like you have to stay for dinner. Just come for a cup of tea. We then met up in central London uh, for lunch. And then his two kids went off. And then he said to me, oh, Shaheen, um, uh, yeah, about the visit to your mum, can I discuss something with you? And I said, yes. And he literally collared me on the side of the River Thames. And he said, you know, I have these really fond memories of your mum and I want to remember her like that. And I'm not sure how I'm going to find it, you know, when I come and see her. And I literally choked up because I was so shocked that he collared me on my own. And I wasn't expecting it, I, especially since we had had a military-style discussion of when he's good to come and visit my mum, right? And um, I just said, okay, uncle. I said, well, I said, this is really your chance to say goodbye to my mum because you don't know when you're going to see her again. And... I said, I do understand how you feel. I know that it's going to be quite hard for you to see her, but really this is your chance to say goodbye to her. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, she was your sister before she was my mother. But if that's how you feel, fine. And by this time now, I can feel the anger welling up inside me. You know, I literally just want to scream my head off and just say how rude he was. And anyway... Uh, and then I said, okay, fine, you know, uh, let's just leave everything. And then I remember coming home 
I got back to East Croydon. I was getting on the tram to get in my car and I, my throat just, I just felt a lump in my throat. My eyes welled up with tears. And I just thought, how can people be so selfish and just think of themselves and how they are going to feel and not for one minute think, you know, however much it's going to be difficult for me, I need to pay my respects because I don't know when I'm going to see my sister again. And his children then shamed him into coming. And by this time now, so pissed off, I just thought, I don't even want you near the house. But then his daughter contacted me, my cousin, and she said, Shaheen, I don't know what my dad said to you, but we are coming to see your mum. And everyone says, oh, we hate seeing auntie like this. And, you know, first few times I'd be like, okay, I, I get it. You know, my mum my has changed a lot. But then after a while, I just think, you know what, get over it. This is dementia. It's going to affect so many people in our lives. Um, we as a society have to just stop thinking about ourselves and how we feel and just try and imagine how the other person feels. And so and there is... A complete lack of understanding of, of, of dementia. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's ignorance. I don't know if it's spiritual madness and people want to run. I, I, don't, I don't know. I really don't know. But I honestly thought that by having this diagnosis and having some information booklets and starting to explain what was wrong with mum, that people around her would change and become more empathetic. And at this point, with an accurate diagnosis, I had started to change myself. Okay, but like Shaheen does have extended family as well as a brother, she, but she's the one taking care of her mum, right? She became her mum's carer without even realising it. Like, what do you think? Do you think that often, or do you see often that women end up becoming carers intentionally or otherwise? I've definitely seen this, that the onus is on the daughters more than the sons. And in the case where there are only sons, the onus is on the daughter-in-laws. And I think that just stems back to this whole cultural belief that everything outside of the house is the man's domain. So bringing in the money and, you know, everything that is out and everything inside the house and whoever lives in the house is under the domain of the woman. So, and generally that means, you know, when anyone really gets sick, so for example, you know, you're a couple and your child gets sick, you often see that the mother has more of the burden than the father. So you see that with the elderly too. It doesn't have to be dementia. You know, if someone, you know, has had, for example, a heart attack and the recovery that comes after, we often in South Asian communities, we would see the woman in that household, whether it be the immediate daughter or it be the daughter-in-law, the onus will fall on them to do the work. Uh, but the, the terrible thing about dementia is that we don't acknowledge is it is debilitating for the carer as well. So we are subjecting women and sometimes exclusively women to the physical and emotional stress and burden that this carries when there might be an equally able sibling, like a brother, who could at least split the burden split that sort of work 
and they're not doing it because of these kind of preconceived gender roles. Definitely, this the, there is this common theme that arises that people are ostracized, that, you know, it's something Shaheen said, which really resonated with me, was that South Asians, we have this belief that we look after our own, but that's just not true because I've seen it happen too often where the, you know, the second... Not even that, that there's been an official diagnosis, but the second someone starts demonstrating those symptoms of dementia, first the friends leave, the so-called friends, then family members, they start to peter away. And there are all these excuses for it, that they don't want to see this person go through what they're going through. It's too painful for them or, or they're busy, you know, they can't, but you know, there's just this lack of effort, the suddenly this idea of looking after your own, it's like that person is just not your own anymore. Suddenly there are all these reasons to not help out. And I've seen, you know, all the way down to, you know, children abandoning their parents when it happens, because I think, first of all, there's a lack of understanding of the disease itself. So people are like, well, what are we supposed to do? This person doesn't know who we are. They can't communicate. You know, what can we even do to be there for them. So, and they don't even try to be present, which is sometimes all you really need. So I, it, this is something that resonates with a lot of South Asian people with dementia and their carers that we get totally isolated. We get totally abandoned. The people we thought were our friends and family, they no longer want to associate with us. And when they do come over, it's only for a little while and they don't really they speak over the person who has dementia. They pretend like that person isn't even there. They don't even acknowledge them. We had started going to the National Hospital of Neurology every six months. My mum was seen by Professor Fox. And I think, uh, I don't know if it was a year or two later, I actually had to go at my brother and I said, I said, you know, I said, I actually can't believe that you haven't once said to me, Shaheen, can I, can I come with you and mum the next time you go? So my dad would come, but he, he wouldn't ask very much. And I said, you know, you, you, you show no interest in your mum's health whatsoever. I, and I was just disgusted, if I'm honest. I said, I'm absolutely disgusted. I said, you actually are the person who's been closest to mum throughout her whole life. You've been the apple of her eye. And here she is now with this terrible disease and you don't even want to come and see, uh, come and meet the consultant so you can ask the questions that you want to ask. I do think that in our community, we think the responsibility just falls onto the shoulders of the females in the family. And it's one of those mm. unspoken things. Like, why was it me? Why, why, why was it me? Why was it just assumed that it should be me? That's Shaheen's job, so we don't have to... We don't have to get involved. You know, I see it a lot with, you know, Asian friends whose husbands just automatically assume their wife is going to look after their own mother, right? It's just one of those <laughs> assumed things. And it happens a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, some people do get yeah. married so that there is someone to look after their mum and dad, the in-law. Right. <laughs> it's just one of those, it's... It, it, it shouldn't be like that. But, for example, my parents came here. They worked hard. They pushed me to get educated. Uh, you know, I took advantage of 
certain opportunities and because of my own ambition you know I've always had an inquisitive mind even though I I went to a pretty crappy inner London comprehensive school um so there is a financial cost involved there is an emotional cost involved and then there is the unspoken assumed caring role involved right mm-hmm. like I calculated that I probably lost 1.5 million pounds in earnings because I was the one taking care of my mum it's kind of like oh that's okay someone's taking care of her we don't need to get involved I think that's what happens my my life had become unimportant and all the responsibility was on my shoulders on a personal level I have found it extremely difficult to um you know seek out romance or or go on dates or or find a partner because I was struggling so much on my own there was very very little time uh, left in in my life and also I felt really embarrassed to talk about um my mom and and her condition um and so you know I often meet people and I go oh god Jean I can't believe you're not married and I go yeah well okay it just didn't you know it just didn't happen yeah but why I don't understand you know, you're this amazing person and you're this and you're that and very lovely lovely compliments and then and then they don't understand and I just say well you know it just it just didn't happen but also I shied away from it because I I just didn't feel a part of society I didn't have my career um I had this great educational background I lost my working identity so I I kind of like felt like a nobody for so long and that definitely made me feel very invisible um in in the outside world and so there is a huge impact on carers I I've you know I've met a lot of carers and it's not just me there's many other people as well who have uh, sacrificed their own personal lives in order to look after a parent. And it shouldn't have to... And actually, do you know what? It should not have to be that. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't have taken so long to get my mum accurately diagnosed. Even if she was diagnosed five years earlier, it would have bought me so much time to plan and prepare for her future, right? Instead of mm-hmm. instead of it turning into firefighting mode all the time. Um so, so yeah, you know. And you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, do they call it snake oil treatments and misinformation on the internet where people think, oh, uh, have some coconut oil and it will, it will cure your dementia. Right, so we, so my brother and I would have these massive battles, and he'd say, "Oh, give mom some coconut oil," and I said, "Look, a certain part of her brain has shrunk. No amount of coconut oil is going to make those brain cells regrow. Like, do you actually understand that? I don't know why. I just think our culture has such a misunderstanding of anything to do with the brain. We really, or mental health, we we just." We just are not open to understanding it. And I don't know if that's because we don't have a word for it. Um, And also, if we don't go forward and seek help, 
how can the National Health Service create appropriate services for us? It's not just a question. It's mm-hmm. not just a question of language. There might be different ways of communicating what dementia is. There may be a different way. There may be different groups. Uh, for example, so... you know, I don't know if leaders of the mosques should be talking to people about mm. dementia and saying we need to understand this more. There's, but if we don't come forward then we're not we're never going to talk about about it and we're and we then also won't push for more appropriate services like there is not one size fits all because i you know i'm a modern asian woman i had no problem uh seeing any white doctors for example um you know maybe sometimes even explaining it in our own language would help the GP that initially saw my mum with him being you know someone that looks like us from our own background even if he was communicating in English it is perhaps more comfortable to hear it from somebody like that rather than Mm. you know an English doctor or someone that uh, even maybe speaks English in a different way Um, so I, I often see leaflets and pamph- and, and booklets that have been translated, but then sometimes they're not translated correctly, um, and or, or the words used are, are, are not correct. So I, I mean, even within Alzheimer's Research UK, I think they were trying to produce something in Bengali, and they asked me, but I said, like, I'm sorry, I don't read and write Bengali, so I, I'm not the right person to ask. But when it was done. Someone else uh, who had more knowledge um, picked up that it had the words they were using, even saying Bengali were not it was were not the right way to describe what was going on with the disease. So there is a lot around language and culture, especially for our parents' generation, and especially uh, if they do start to lose their ability to speak English. Um, communicating things in in the right way and also knowing where okay so for example supposing there was you know another auntie or uncle that was struggling where where would they go for help if their gp wasn't very supportive who would they go and ask you know Mm. you you you, you, where where would you go if you've never come across social services or you've never sought this type of help where where do you go to seek the help? I don't know. So Nadine, um, your work uh, as you're working like very closely with individuals who have experience with dementia services, what would you say? Would you say that people are falling through the cracks? Yes, people are definitely falling through the cracks. This is definitely the case for ethnic minorities and South Asians, and it also shows why they, you know, only really enter the system properly once their dementia is too severe because it wasn't detected earlier on. So, they're being, you know, I wouldn't say ignored because you know, some of them are entering the service, but they are there is a level of neglect because even clinicians know that the tests that they're using and you know the interview schedules that they're using they are compromised. Clinicians have upfront admitted this, but they're like, we don't have anything else to use in place of this. So they are aware that people are falling through the cracks. So when it comes to the actual testing portion, this is work that I've actually done. Um, I've first off 
you know, wanted to just figure out how to make tests more suited for different cultures. And I picked a very specific South Asian culture just to sort of do a demonstration on, just to sort of use as an example that this can be done. And I picked a test and I adapted it for that South Asian group. And to do that, I was working with cognitively healthy older South Asians. But now I'm at the stage where I've designed the test that has now been culturally adapted for South Asians who speak Urdu. And now, you know, once everything opens up again and I'm back to doing the research, I'll be administering that test to people, South Asians with dementia and South Asians who don't have dementia and just kind of seeing, is it accurately distinguishing between those who have it and those who don't? So that's the testing portion of it. But when I'm going to be identifying, you know, other problems that exist beyond just the actual test that they're using, you know, whether it be like their interactions with staff members or, you know, the materials that they were given to educate themselves about dementia. For that, I'll be interviewing people who have dementia, who've been through the service and their family members as well and their carers who went through that process with them. I literally go to sleep having nightmares about how I'm going to recruit people. It is it's immensely difficult and it is the bane of my life. You first off, um, I don't think many people realize this, but when they create, you know, participant recruitment materials like posters and your information sheets, they always do them in English. I've seen very few people who go ahead and also do it in the target language. So that was something I had to do. I had to do it in the target language. And Translation is not as easy as people think. It's not just, you know, giving it to some translator like, oh, can you just do this in another language? You have to go over it word by word because it might be that a lot of the technical words that we use in research materials, those words don't exist in your target language. So I don't know, an example of that could be that in your information sheet, you have to tell somebody that you will keep their information anonymous. And that word anonymous was so problematic for me because there is an Urdu word for anonymous, but it is that very old age Urdu. I went to my parents. I'm like, how do you say this? I'm like, we don't even know what this is. So I then had to like call up my grandmother in Pakistan and be like, do you know what this word is? And she had she had to think about it. She's like, I think I know. And then, but she got it in the end because she's she's born and bred Pakistani. She's always lived in Pakistan, and she reads a lot of the complicated literature. So she kind of she kind of understood what I was talking about. But see, a generation lower than that, they would struggle with it. When I would, I did a lot of um, we call the patient and public involvement groups. So I had members of you know just British South Asian communities who are older than 60, come and look at my participant materials that I was going to use for the research. And I asked them to read over it and tell me, you know, did they understand everything? And they would highlight these kind of words and be like, this Urdu is too complicated. I would not expect, you know, people in my community to know this level of Urdu. You got to make it far more understandable. But then at the same time, that means in the place of a word, you're going to have sentences. And that's going to increase the length of your document. I had to go over all my materials and every time I had to come up with a new word for it, I didn't know what to do. In the end, I, every time I had to write anonymous, I would have to write 
a whole description of what anonymous meant. So in Urdu, I would say is tekik ke dauran mein aapka naam istemal nahi hoga. Aapka naam hataya jayega aur ek number diya jayega. Yeah, essentially that your name will be removed from all written things and a number will be put in place. And I had to translate all of that. It makes the material so lengthy and awful to read, but there's no way around it because you have to do it for ethics. And then people get put off by these lengthy materials that you're giving them. And you're like, I'm sorry, it was either something you couldn't understand or something really long. And I decided to give you the really long document. So the English document is four pages. So two A4 pages. The Urdu document is now 11 pages. And it's probably going to increase because I got more feedback from ethics that you need to include this legal disclaimer and this kind of disclaimer. And I don't, this is a huge issue that I have with these research boards and stuff because they they all say they want to have diverse research and they want to fund research for ethnic minorities. But then they've created, they don't understand that the materials that they've created for research are just not suitable for the public and especially not for these ethnic minority groups. I mean, even English speakers reading all those, it's like, you know, do you ever read the terms and conditions? Do you ever actually read the terms and conditions? No one reads the terms and conditions. So it's like the terms and conditions of research. And you're expecting, you're giving this like 11 page document to someone who has just barely been able to fill you into their busy schedule. And they're looking at you like, now I got to read this novel. It's just another buyer. Like it puts them off participating. It, 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 it just speaks to the whole like academia and their ivory tower thing that they're not thinking on the base level that people don't have time to be reading all these little intricacies. And you've explained them in such difficult detail that even if they do try to read it, they're not going to understand it. And it's probably going to confuse them even more. Like, what are you going to do with my data? Who are you sharing it with? Because when I read those documents, I don't feel comfortable. Like if I was participating, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I would feel like there is something shady going on because there is so much explanation and you know covering your ass needed in these documents. It's, if we have to acknowledge that the lens of research, like South Asians, for example, are not the default. The default is Caucasian male in research, isn't it? So it prob- probably for the longest time, we weren't even noticed, like this had to be done, like probably didn't even realize, oh, culture impacts performance on test, culture impacts the entire diagnostic process. Probably wasn't acknowledged until quite recently, because when you look back at the literature, it when I look back on it, it was only really in the early 2000s that this started peaking up, that South Asians are a problem in services and da, 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 da. So it's, it took so long to recognize that there was a problem to begin with, that the fact that the solutions are only now cropping up is not surprising. And then it's also the fact that you know, ethnic minorities are not involved in the actual research process as much as they should be. Ethnic minorities are quite difficult to recruit from as compared to non-ethnic minorities. It's a whole thing. Um, for many reasons, they don't participate in research, such as you know, socioeconomic status makes it difficult for them to give up the time and stuff to 
participate in research, for example. So when they don't participate in that research, their voice isn't heard, and then the products of that research is not designed for them. So you keep coming up with new solutions that just don't include ethnic minorities in any way. So there's really a whole bunch of reasons for why this is only just starting to crop up. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Carers are definitely emotionally drained in this process. They show higher rates of things like anxiety and depression and are often more susceptible to getting sick just because it does something to you. So I've, I've seen it, you know, time and again, you know, my own grandmother, she has dementia and she, it, it was a point where she was physically able, but her mind was unwell, but because she was physically able, she was able to get very violent and she would often get very violent with my mother when my mother wouldn't let her do things such as, you know, randomly leave the house. 
So people forget that these carers, they're often being subject not just to this emotional drainage, but sometimes to their physical safety. You know, they're being beaten, they're being hit, they're being, you know, yelled at and screamed at and pushed aside. And this is something that we don't really acknowledge because I think when we imagine someone with dementia, we imagine someone old and frail and weak, whereas that comes later. Usually the person starts off being quite physically able. Might have been 2016. Um, I had reached a point where I couldn't cope. And I'd also um, started, I was given a, a lot of help and support by the National Hospital of Neurology. And I had some counseling from a clinical psychologist who really. Um, helped me understand the disease, really helped me change the way I interacted with my mum. And actually, they offered family counselling, but both my dad and my brother just ignored the letters. And so it was just me that went for the counselling, right? So there is some specialist help, but if people don't take it, they can't force this on you. But we were invited as a family. Mm. And I remember saying to my dad, Dad, let's just go and have a chat because I was finding it so helpful. And he just said, no, no, it's okay. You know, don't think I'm going to bother. So um, I got to a point where I just thought, I, I can't cope with this anymore. Either I'm going to jump off a bridge or slash my wrist or or there's going to be something terrible is going to happen. You know, I'm going to come home and find my dad's done something to my mum and you know, I can't be tied to the house 24 hours a day. And I then came to learn that there are only three highly specialised neurological nursing homes in the whole of the UK. And um, I could see that I was probably going to have a nervous breakdown if I didn't get some respite. And so I just wanted my mum to go and have a break for a couple of weeks so we could all breathe and uh, I broached my dad with this idea and he was very, um, didn't like the idea at all. So here's the thing, right? We have this thing about people putting parents in care homes and there is this misconception that we look after our own. Um, and I do feel that a lot of responsibility normally fall, falls on one person's shoulder but yet, when it comes to the idea of going off for a short respite break, it's the most abhorrent thing in the world. And I remember my dad telling people in the family that I was the worst daughter. What kind of daughter am I that wants to put her mum in a care home? So the, the perception was that I wanted to shove my mum in a care home. But yet nobody was helping me and nobody was supporting me and nobody was there at say 2am in the morning when my mum was wandering the house trying to get out or you know perhaps causing a fire or something in the kitchen there was nobody supporting me but yet the idea of sending mum off for a break so that we as a family could breathe was the most disgusting perceived as the most disgusting thing ever. I don't know if we have a lot of Asian carers in this area. I certainly didn't come across any. 
um i so so you did actually uh, like actually look for like uh, oh, asian yeah. or Bengali yeah, yeah, yeah. because when my mom started to uh lose her english language skills i wanted someone uh bengali or asian to be with her so my my idea was that the person would become her friend and she could still go out and do some of the things that she enjoyed mm. doing and that's what i wanted to do but it was very difficult i could not find any bengali carers in this area i even went to east london to try and recruit some carers even if it was a few times a week so so that culturally they could support my mom in cooking for example my mom had lost her cooking skills she would pour salt and oil into the the curry uh, like you wouldn't believe and so Um, but i wanted her to maintain her skills because she really enjoyed cooking but it's hard if you if there are not appropriate people people to help and support you so someone asian would have been help been able to help my mum continue cooking but that just wasn't possible and in fact i was telling alex that i did interview some bengali carers and you know one woman turned up with her husband at the house um and sat in on the interview which i i found really weird <laughs> and then he wanted to go and pray at a certain time or they both wanted to go and pray in the middle of the interview and i just sat there and i thought okay so if i do actually employ you well, who's going to look after my mum when you have to go and do your prayers like this isn't going to work this is a job and also the noises that my mum was making they thought if i played the quran to my mum it would actually help her and these these noises she would making would would disappear so even people from the kingdom industry wow. do not understand the grand story that that it definitely amused me it was it was both devastating and amusing at the same time we see uh, a lot of explanations for what it could be other than acknowledging that it is a physical disease because yes it doesn't help that there's no south asian language that has a word for dementia so we're just saying the word dementia and things are slightly better off in the ethnic minority communities in the uk because i think dementia has been such a focal point in the country that it's talked about a lot so i know that with a lot of south asians i've worked with they they recognize the word because it's come to a point where they all know someone who's had it but they will acknowledge things like the, everyone knows what dementia is but you don't want to believe that it's what's happened in your family so they'll blame it on things like it's just madness without acknowledging that there could be a clinical title to that it's just madness the person is crazy um sometimes the whole spiritual thing comes in so this is a punishment for the kind of life that they've led and they're being punished for it now you know maybe they did something to their own family members a long time ago or whatever but this is why this is happening this is like god's wrath then there's the whole aspect of it's very strong in south asian culture black magic so often the concept of black magic is that there's somebody in this world who is maybe envious of what you want or envious of your life and they want it taken away from you they want to destroy you in some way whatever way that might be possible and then there are different ways to perform that black magic so they can say they can pray for certain things like something evil or bad to happen to you there are some terrible rituals which often involve things like throwing animal blood on a person's house and stuff like that it's really awful but the whole idea is it's almost like trying to curse you 
So when people start presenting with these symptoms of dementia and black magic comes as an excuse, it's like, oh, someone, we call it nazar, which is like the sight. So someone had their eye on you. So the evil eye, basically. Someone had their eye on you. They wanted to bring you down. They, they, they were jealous of you. They wanted to take you down. And this is how they've done it. They've taken your sanity away. So one of the solutions, the counter to black magic is supposed to be white magic, which in its truest form is prayer. And for Muslims, that would be, you know, engaging in the Quran and all of that. So that can stem from an idea that that idea can stem, which is that, you know, by reading the Quran, you can undo the effects of black magic. On the other hand, even when people acknowledge that, no, this is not black magic, it's, it is dementia, it's a physical thing, it's a disease, there is still this, this idea like, oh, play the Quran for them, which can be excellent if that person would have done that for themselves were they healthy. So um, I know that for my grandmother, she was very religious before her dementia. So for her, hearing the Quran and hearing the prayers is beneficial. But for someone like Shaheen said, her mother was not very religious. They're not, you know, to begin with, to listening to the Quran would not have any special meaning. It wouldn't be, you know, firing something off in the brain that was like suppressed and in there deep. No, it would just have no significance. It's not even a Band-Aid solution because it wouldn't even stick. The belief remains that you should be listening to the Quran because it all stems to that you should be turning to God, not acknowledging that, you know, many diseases happen and you can pray as much as you want, but people still die. People still go through these illnesses. And sometimes you have to acknowledge that you could pray for the best, but the best will not be that the person is getting going to get better. A lot of people wanted to believe that my mom would speak properly again or that she would get better from this disease. And no matter how much I explained that it is a terminal illness and a degenerative disease that once the brain starts shrinking, you know, you don't get those skills back. Um, No one, no one really understands uh the disease and i and and maybe this is a lot of it is to do with fear because there are no treatments or therapies to really halt the disease uh even mm. having a diagnosis i think there's a lot of social stigma attached i think it disappeared yeah. from my mum's life even more when they did find out um and also i, I heard a lot of stories you know where people had mocked my mum um wow, for some of the things that really yeah and I heard them and it really hurt me and I thought gosh rather than I don't know have some understanding like you know you all pray you go to the mosque you do your fasting and yet you mock someone who's been part of your life for a number of years I, I I'm really at odds with that I'm not a particularly religious person myself, you know, I, I don't pray, but I just thought people in my community would have been a bit more empathetic, but I found it to be the complete opposite. Even in East London, look, 
uh, I discovered the true extent of what was going on when I recruited a carer and they both went to East London with mum. She would leave the office and then she would the, she would go to the market and she would be banging on all the sh window shop fronts and all the shopkeepers knew her and they all told her to get out of the shop, right? They all told wow. her to get out of the shop they, and not in a nice way, right? And this is what I came Gosh. to learn and I thought, wow, my parents had their business in Whitechapel for what, 40, 40 plus years. And these must have been shops that she'd gone to regularly for her meat and fish and vegetables and clothing. And these were the same people who were shunning her. So we, you know, so our own community shunned my mum and you couldn't get a stronger community than, than Whitechapel. That, mm. I've, I was really upset by that. I was shocked. That's really I was tough. Really so tough. I, I just thought people would have said something to my dad, like, hey, is your wife all right? Or, oh, it's okay, let auntie do that, you know. Um, even mm. the corner shop, right, where my parents live in Wallington. So I told you they moved here in, I think, 1986. So mum and dad used to get their regular papers and mum would go and pay the bill every week. And she would obviously get confused about how much money she owed. So the shopkeeper would get irritated. And then I was in there one time and he would say, oh, you know, your mom, she's always arguing with me about the bill. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. And then once I got a diagnosis, I went in and I said, look, you know, this is what I've learned about my mom. I'm really sorry. I said, if she comes into the shop, here's my number. Give me a call. We'll come and get her. Um, but just to let you know that she's she's not well. And again, I was greeted with, well, can't you just keep her at home? And that's the thing. Wow. When it comes to FTD, you're usually a lot younger and you're physically mobile and mm -hmm. active. How, how do you keep somebody like that at home? It's really hard to keep somebody like yeah. that at home. It's really hard to say, no, mum, you can't go out. No, mum, you can't go to the paper shop. No, mum, you can't go to Asda shopping anymore. No, mum, you can't go to the... No, it's, it's virtually impossible to do. So uh, with all these uh, experiences you were having with like difficulty with getting care from the right, uh, maybe cultural background, had you ever considered um, actually taking your mum like back to Bangladesh um, as an option? I, I, I did not actually uh, think about it because I did not believe that she would be better off back home uh, with all the mm -hmm. um, lap, with, with, with the perception of her dementia in her community here, I thought that perception would be magnified a hundred times in Bangladesh and mm -hmm. that people would have less understanding of her personality changes and I just had this fear that she would just be locked up in a room. So no, I didn't ever consider mm -hmm. it, even though my life would have become so much easier. I just had this fear that if she went back home, she would just be mistreated in the most awful way. And in fact, when um, when I did want my mum to go for some respite, my, my dad got it into his head that, you know, I wanted to shove my mum in a care home. And so he then had this grand idea that, he wanted to take mum back home. And I just said to him, I just said, Dad, if you do that, it's not going to be the right place for her. Who? I said, who is going to look after mum? 
by this time my mum had her team of carers right that I had recruited who is going to look after mum who's going to take care of her I said, you're, you're not in a position to take care of her. So who's going to look after her? Oh, well, you know, there's lots of family members. This is the notion we have that family all chip in, but they don't. They really don't. That's not my experience anyway. I'm not saying that all Asian families are like that. But I just felt that back home they would have less understanding. The few family members I'd interacted with who asked me, re who said really hurtful things like, when I explained what FTD was and they would say, oh, it's a kind of schizophrenia. And I just thought, oh God, it's like banging my head against a brick wall. Like they really don't understand that her brain just doesn't function in the way that it used to and that it's some sort of spiritual madness. Um, so no, so then my dad wanted to take her back home. And I remember again having huge rows with my dad and my brother. And then in the end, I kind of gave up and I said, okay, I said, all right, well, you want to take her? Be my guest. But understand, if you take her, she's then your responsibility. And mm -hmm. if whatever happens to her once she gets on that plane is entirely down to you guys. And then they didn't, in the end, they didn't take her. I don't know why, but they didn't. <clears throat> and in fact, my dad, oh, bless him. He even went to the police to have me thrown out of the house. He wanted me. He wow. wanted me thrown out of the house again because there was this perception that I'm the most awful daughter, you know, wanting to shove my mum in a care home. And and so I think he'd gone to the police and they said, oh, well, sir, this is a civil matter. You know, it's not a criminal matter. He'd even gone to that that extent and then was telling family members, you know, I heard him on the phone. I came home one day and I heard him speaking to someone saying, you know, well, we need to sit down and talk, you know, how can how can a daughter do this to her mother and how how can I get her out of the house? And the, the funny thing is that family member didn't even call me to say, Shaheen, what's going on? Are you really doing this? Even if they had a bad perception about me, they, they didn't call me. So they just listened to my dad. And again, this misunderstanding continued. So, um, no, I, I think it would have been the worst thing. People have... People have these rose-tinted spectacles and think, oh, yes, back home, everything will be so much better. How will it be better with dementia when we don't even have a word for dementia? How would it be better if we if we say someone's bug or, you know, mad or normal? How would it be better um, if the society that you think is going to become closer to you shuns you even more than over here? I think we have these very idealistic uh, dreams about how people would be looked after. We don't even understand dementia in some mm. countries. We don't even have appropriate services. We don't even have a way to diagnose somebody. So how on earth, what is, is, the, is the servant in the house going to be the one to look after? And I can tell you somebody did this. Somebody brought their mother from America right that had been there for years and took her back to bangladesh saying that they were going to live with her and that everyone in america was treating her badly and they they took the mother there and guess who was left to look after her the servants the servants were not trained they don't know about dementia um and the poor woman i think you know she was just 
not her personal hygiene wasn't taken care of. She'd had a fall on the marble floor and broken her hip. And, you know, so no, it's, 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 it's not the, if someone has been living in the, in any other country by their own for a number of years, it's not the right thing to do to take them back. Unless you have lots of money and you have the right nursing care, but that's not my experience. You know, I have friends reaching out to me from all over the world, asking me desperate to know what to do. Um, you know, someone who's a partner at McKinsey and living in Dubai and, you know, uh, his dad's showing some memory issues. What, what should he do? Um, so we are actually quite advanced in the UK, even though at times we might not think we are quite advanced in terms of what we do with dementia, the work the charities are doing, you know, having a way to diagnose what's going on with the brain. My mum was in Bangladesh. Who would have diagnosed her? Nobody. Nobody whatsoever. From my experience, it seems that people don't even think of going back to their home country as an option anymore because... Well, when it comes to South Asians, the home countries that they come from, I know that sitting here in Pakistan, we don't have any resources for people with dementia. We don't have care homes and we don't really have any systems in place. So if you were to bring back somebody with dementia, I mean, there's really nothing for them here. You're almost better off in the UK, even though the system isn't designed for you, because back here we have no system. So they, you know, they, they are often also stuck because for a lot of these ethnic minorities, yes, their parents are from this home country, but they've never been to this home country or if they've, they've only visited, it's not their home. The UK is their home and they're already feeling isolated and ostracized because their community has left them. The idea of moving to a whole new country now where you're not familiar with anything and the only person who is familiar with something is beyond being able to help you, that just magnifies and intensifies that social isolation. So for a lot of them, they're like, no, moving, unless they have like a sibling or someone else living in that home country already, it's kind of like, well, no, that's not really a possibility for us. The only possibility is to stay and work with what we have. As we've come to the end of our episode, I want to know one final thing. With all this um, kind of work you're doing, drawing from your own experiences and like working with charities to increase awareness, have you ever approached any of the people or parts of the community or members of your family to educate them on what it is and how has the response been to that kind of approach? Oftentimes I do think like, wow, I'm doing all this amazing work with Alzheimer's Research UK and yet I haven't even... I haven't even made a slight impact into our Asian community. I feel as if I haven't even had any impact at all. And even through the Rare Dementia Support Group, I, like when I go along to these meetings, I mean, the the meetings now have large numbers of people and you still see very few brown faces, black faces, you know, Mm. uh very very few very few there's only been one other girl i think that i've bonded with uh whose mom had had ftd um 
so again, e- even at the specialist level, we are not there, right? And I think that's because we mm-hmm. don't we don't come forward. I think we we just keep things hidden at home. And that's what I mean about if we don't come forward, if we don't seek help, we won't have appropriate services in place yeah. that may be more culturally appropriate for us and help us more and help our community more. It's a bit of a mm-hmm. vicious circle in a way. Can you uh, tell us where we can find out more, what resources you would like people to hear about? And uh, if you're happy for this to happen, how people can reach out to you? Oh, yes. Um, uh, people can reach out to me on Twitter. We can uh, we can drop your Twitter handle in our show notes for yeah. this episode. Yeah, people can reach out to me. Um, I would say if anyone is uh, struggling to understand what dementia is, there's a lot of research, uh, a lot of resources on the Alzheimer's Research UK website. And if you do think that your uh, a loved one is suffering from a rare dementia there is also the rare dementia um, support group who have excellent resources on their website as well usually we think oh someone has gone through is going through grief is going through devastation or trauma or something it's best to leave them alone and let them cope and you don't want to interfere no get in there because these people are being isolated ref right and center so you get in there interfere as much as you want be present and be there because a person with dementia might not be able to tell you that they're happy to see you but it might drastically improve their behavior in little ways that you might not notice but the person who's caring for them might notice and i would say as much as you want to be there for the person with dementia, be there for the carer as well, because they are going through hell. This is the last episode in our mini-series exploring health conditions. If you've enjoyed it, please do jump onto Apple Podcasts and do leave us a review. As always, we'd like to say a massive thank you to the researchers that we spoke to, and of course, Nadine and Shaheen. We're going to be on a short break now, but we'll be back again with some new episodes. But till then, take care, stay safe, and catch you all real soon. So um, I've been told by all the services, like, we need to, like, pause everything for now. And then I was like, what am I going to do with this time? And then I wanted to, like, work on my thesis a little bit. But all the stuff, the important stuff that I want to incorporate in my thesis was hard copy. It's all sitting in the UK. Because I was not supposed to be here right now. It all just happened in the weirdest way possible. So I have no clothes here. I have no work here. I just sit and I bake and I cry and I eat what I bake. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's all I do.